Welcome everyone, this is Shelley Weir, President and CEO of FICPA, and welcome to our next episode of CEO Conversations. I am so thrilled to be joined by Barry Milansan. Thank you so much, Barry, for joining us in Florida today. We're gonna to have a really exciting conversation about some of the trends happening in the profession right now, and Barry maybe can give us a little bit of insights into what might be coming down in the future as well. Um, for those that are not aware, and I can't imagine many are, but Barry is the president and CEO of the Association of International Certified Professional Accountants as well as AICPA, the American Institute of CPAs, and our national partner here at FICPA. Barry, thank you again for joining us in Florida. We're thrilled to have you, and hopefully the first of many conversations that we can yeah, have together. Absolutely. Well, it's great to be here, and there's such a great energy at the FICPA right now, and uh, the team is doing a great job. You're doing a great job. I know the board is is really engaged in strategy thinking, and. And I think it's important for all the members in Florida, and I think when we think about it on a national uh, level, there's so many exciting things and opportunities in the profession. It's just uh, it's just the right time to be involved. And of course, we have some issues, which we'll discuss, that we have to address as well. Indeed. I think we'll solve all the world's problems this morning, won't that we? That would be a good, like, 30 or so minutes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, let's start there. Let's start at the top, 30,000-foot view. From your vantage point, how is the profession doing right now, maybe as we sit in 2022, as compared to 2019, before we went into the pandemic? Well, I like to, I really like to focus on our role in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, I, I, first, I hope everyone who's listening that's a CPA or works for a firm is incredibly proud of what the profession did. And I think it's, it's important to pause and think about that, no matter what the issues of the day are. I, I like to say that, you know, when they write a history book about COVID, there probably won't be a chapter about the CPA profession in it, but there should be because we were the first responders really to the business community, particularly the small business community. And the small business community meaning the private company sector, which is the lifeblood of the American economy. And when you combine the, the government assistance programs, which we had a huge combined state and national advocacy role involved with that, trying to really make them productive and keeping businesses and employment going. Um, and just the trusted advisor work that so many people did, either whether they work in a company or the company is their client. So we had an unbelievable impact. And the rewards of that is that the profession has done very well um, on top of that. And the trust in our profession is at record highs. Um, when, when you think about our CPA profession, this objectivity and this trust and the public interest, frankly, you know, we live in a world that doesn't have a lot of trust and maybe, maybe zero trust <laughs> in other places. And, and you know, business people, uh, individuals, when they turn to CPAs for advice, really play a huge role in that. And when you just sort of, in, a, in the, you know, pause and think back, that impact over the last couple of years has been dramatic. And we ought to be really, really, really proud about our colleagues and our and our people that we, you know, inter inter um, interact with uh, with the profession, they've done a great job. So now we're doing well today too. Different challenges, sure. Um, different challenges out there. The world is moving on. Obviously, we're facing inflation. Obviously, 
um, you know, some geopolitical issues around the world, supply chain, which is now in everyone's vocabulary, which probably wasn't in 2019. <laughs> um, but I think a very important role for the profession in understanding supply chain. And in fact, we created an assurance service in, in supply chain during COVID mm -hmm. because we understood that boards and CEOs were looking for either consulting or reliability in their supply chains. And so um, it's a much different world, and obviously there's a lot of challenges out there as well. No doubt about it. And I think overall, as you stated, the profession is performing very well, which is a good, a good thing, but there's also challenges with that. And I know that we're hearing from our members that you know business is great and business is booming, but certainly, um, you know, from a human capital perspective, is that sustainable? And how do we keep moving at this speed and, and continue to not burn out our folks, which I know is keeping a lot of our folks up at night? And, and we'll touch on that a bit today. Yeah, we will. And you know, there's some external forces there, but there's also some self-inflicted there. Mm -hmm. Clearly, IRS for those that work in the tax space mm -hmm. has been a major issue from a service perspective, which we can which we can touch on and, and drill down on. I think though, as it relates to the firms and those different challenges, um, and this is very, very hard to do. First off, there's 44,000 CPA firms in this country. So we are very diverse mm -hmm. from a public practice perspective. We have 140 to 150,000 CPAs who work in corporate, and a lot of those are in small businesses. But when we look at the firm perspective, there, there is this challenge that I think leaders of firms have to step back on, and that is the profession is rapidly changing. Mm -hmm. There's this sort of leveling off of technology combined with people. Technology is not replacing our profession, but it is changing our business model, and it is changing how we deploy human capital, which is another way of saying we have to look at the business models. And I think. Uh, progressive firms dealing with the opportunities and challenges today really are stepping back and saying what is the business model of our firm and we have to be willing to change that because it's not like it was 5, 10, 15 years ago. But what I hope people think about when I say that is if you think about no matter where you are in a firm today, if you think about that firm when you entered it, or right. whatever firm you entered with, mm -hmm. it isn't the same either. Right. And that, that sort of agility and ability to change is really what's going to set our profession apart going forward and really help address the challenges that you referenced. No question. And I know we're going to chat a little bit today about client advisory services, but that's certainly an area that is evolving and, and growing very rapidly right now. But you touched on the IRS um, a little bit. I know um, it's been a very taxing tax season. You like what I did there, Barry? Taxing that was good. Tax that season. was good. That was good. <laughs> um, but for our tax practitioners listening in to this, um, share a little bit about some of the wins that we had this past tax season. There's certainly more work to be done, as we all know. Um, we were very proud to work alongside the AICPA this year to help advance some relief measures. What happened recently and what are you seeing going into this next wave? Yeah, and let me start off by saying you said you're proud and you should be proud. Um, FICPA's you know, advocacy programs, both at the state level and then the cooperation and the coordination at the federal level is fantastic. And I think members need to understand that. There's a huge value in that. And one of the things that we do at the federal level, and, I, and you know, Florida is a different environment at the state level, mm -hmm. but it really is bipartisan. We really are like 
the last bastion of bipartisanship in Washington because <laughs> it's so polarized. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it manifests itself in, for instance, an IRS situation. We had more bipartisan uh, signage by members of Congress on the IRS issues, more than, well, on a multitude of, of letters, more than 200 different signers on letters to the IRS from Congress, which puts tremendous pressure and awareness on the IRS issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and on one letter alone, about 120 signatures, and extremely bipartisan. And so I can't say that enough because we, back to our, that trusted you know, role, uh, we really try to be in that narrow slice of bipartisanship and all of our issues in Washington. So the IRS. Frankly, um, you know, if the commissioner were here, the commissioner would say all of our problems are related to systems and investment and the need for money. And the reality is there are some of those things mm -hmm. that, are, that are, he's right about. But you could put all the money that we can spend on the IRS from a technology and re-engineering perspective, which needs to take place, mm -hmm. and it wouldn't solve today's the problems that are there today. Right. And, and a lot of the problems, generated originally because the IRS was a very hard-hit agency as it related to COVID. It's very hard for people who work at the IRS to work from home because of confidentiality. So then it started to roll from there. But our position was there were tremendous amounts, what I call self-inflicted wounds that came about that. The IRS's unwillingness to change its penalty process and just the continuing sort of sending out of notices and exacerbating the backlog problem that's been out there. Um, the, the, the way they lock accounts, which traditionally pre-COVID, they would freeze an account when you'd send out a notice for two to three weeks. Well, if you have a backlog of mail and you're sending out a notice and it's going to be four or five or six months before you get to that mail, you ought to be freezing the account for four or five or six months mm -hmm. so that in the interim you're not generating more notices and creating the frustration with taxpayers. Sure. So, you know, we had a series of, of, of four very practical things that we said, you know, related to penalties, related to what I call their penalty machine and the like. Uh, and, and the IRS, for the most part, didn't really make those Im improvements. They did do some things with, they were implementing face, facial recognition technology, we pushed back on that, wrong time to do it. They, they did delay that. They made some slight improvements on some of the issues of K2 and K3, which mm -hmm. is a foreign pass-through entity reporting issue that's highly complicated, maybe overly complicated. Um, and so they, 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 they did make some on the edge changes, mm -hmm. um, but to a large degree, they didn't find their way through it. They brought in additional people. They did, they did try to do those things. And then, you know, the phone back phone system is a problem where you can't get through, and then the backlog of, of, uh, of correspondence. Now, Congress became very engaged in that. Why? Because their constituents, taxpayers, were the ones that are impacted. And Shelley, what I like to say is that the, our tax system is the, is, is the epitome of public-private partnership, if you really think about it. Very much so. For the very simple tax returns, you have the technological solutions that happen with you know, the technology players, and for the more complicated returns, you have to pay prepare a world that our profession sits, you know, primarily in and is the lead in. Um, and so when you have a public-private partnership, it, that, that public part needs to work too. Right. And uh, it hasn't. And I, I think, you know, and then we had 30 million documents shredded, which, 
you know, the IRS took a lot of hits for that and will continue to take a lot of hits for that, not because they were information returns, not because they undermined the tax system, but because it just was it was it was symbolic in a lot of ways or optics of the of the problems that exist. So we still have a long journey to go on that. Um, our team works with the IRS every week, sometimes multiple times a week. There are things that they are trying to work on, but I think holistically they have to take a step back and say, look, this is a public-private partnership mm -hmm. and we need to fix some things, like prepare us having a capability of accessing systems or at least accessing phones so that they can deal with taxpayer problems in a more efficient way and minimize some of the carnage that comes into the communications process. But it's, it's grander than that as well. And um, I think, you know, we'll see what the elections do, but one of the risk points is that, you know, all indications are the Republicans will probably win the House, and if that happens, then, you know, who has the gavel and who's here having the hearings as far as the IRS changes? And I think the tenor on that will clearly change after the elections. Yes, it'll be interesting to monitor and watch. We get a lot of questions from our members that are asking us, what can I do to help in terms of helping to tell the story of what we're going through at the grassroots level with some of these IRS issues? Any advice for our members? Should they just continue to send in their stories to both of us or anything different that they can do? Well, the stories are very, very valuable mm -hmm. because, and, and they can come into our tax division, they can come into you to our tax division so that we can use them on the Hill. It's very, very important. And depending on whether it's a new story or not, because a lot of stories are, you know, been there before, um, the, the, we will work to connect potentially that practitioner or that taxpayer with their member of Congress. There's nothing more powerful than a member of Congress hearing a horrendous story from one of their constituents. Absolutely. And, you know, it's sort of the simple ones, too. Like, you know, I, I mailed in this huge check because I owed taxes, and it's never cleared. Right. You know, those types of things, which we had a lot of those, yes. are really, really, really uh, important stories. Um, and, and really, the tide is changing, I think, with pressure on the IRS to address these, mm -hmm. because constituents to Congress people in Congress um, really is that connectivity. And that's why it's bipartisan, by the way, mm -hmm. because whether you're a Republican <laughs> district or a Democratic district, the constituents pay taxes. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really care. The stories are invaluable. I think that's number one. And then if, if a CPA has a client that's irate over it, okay, the, the CPA is going to feel it, mm -hmm. which means you're probably going to feel it and we're going to feel it for sure. the CPA, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But that message the CPA needs to deliver to that client is let me help you connect to your member of Congress mm -hmm. and so that you can hear it directly. Great advice and that really is the keys to the kingdom. They need to hear from their constituents. So Barry, let's switch over to CAS, Client Advisory Services, for a moment. And we know that it's the fastest growing area in the public accounting space. We'll stay in public accounting for a bit before we transition over to some of our topics for our business and industry CPAs. And I love what you've recently said about this really being the great equalizer amongst public accounting firms. Whether you're a small, medium, or large public accounting firm, there's opportunity for you here. So share with us a little bit about what's happening in CAS at the moment and where maybe there are opportunities for our members that are thinking about either getting started or looking to expand their practice. 
So again, 44,000 firms, the vast majority of them small. The, the, you know, this economy is more than 50% small businesses. Mm -hmm. And what you know, the challenge is, let's just do it at a macro level first. What we're talking about here is those millions of small businesses, some six million, for instance, that were eligible in the PPP program, mm -hmm. six million. What those businesses are about is how do we address you know, the, the challenges of, of that entrepreneur's world, right? right? And what technology is allowing with what we call CAS is almost a reversion to what practice of public accounting was a lot about in the 80s, where um, you know, businesses turned to their CPA and they did quote-unquote monthly accounting work. Mm -hmm. Well, as technology evolved, it was cheaper and better for those businesses to do that in-house, mm -hmm. right? They put their own networks in and they had their own, you know, computer uh, installations. But now with cloud computing, those economics have changed differently. Right. We're using it sort of like big business does where they do managed services agreements in all sorts of ways technology and other types of activities. Well, small business in effect, it's more economical for them to do that as well. And the CPA can be that trusted advisor owning that mm -hmm. space, right? Where it can be, in some cases, you can say CAS is client advisory services, or you can say it's client accounting services. And you know, cloud allows that information to be shared, mm -hmm. to be utilized at the same time, and, and you can really do the work that's necessary for compliance, but also business advice in this shared information of cloud. So how do you get started? There's a multitude of providers of different technologies, and what small firms you know, struggle with is which is the right one, et cetera. And CPA.com, which we own, it has a lot of preferred providers in that space. That doesn't mean that's the only way to do it. Clearly, there are a lot of other players in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. But you have to have the tech stack that actually lets you have that communication and relationship with the client. Um, and then I think you, you want to take the, the, the sort of, I'm going to say the raw accounting and tax compliance and really help that business run their business better. Mm -hmm. And actually small business has tremendous need for that today. Think about coming out of COVID and their human capital challenges. Think about supply chain issues. Think about compliance issues. Think about government assistance programs that are still out there. And so um, it is this sort of linkage. It sits between you know, the, the, the notion of a tax compliance or an accounting compliance and operating the business. And it's frankly more affordable for the small business in many different ways. So it's, it is a high growth area, and it's actually, it doesn't go all the way up to the big four, but in, in the largest 100 firms, it is their, grow, their highest growing area as well. And I think as a small firm, you can think about that, even in, in a half a billion or a billion dollar firm, it's a huge amount of what they're doing today. And it's really evolved, Shelley, to be, if you, if you think about uh, a, an owner of a firm, a partner in a firm, describing their income statement, and, mm -hmm. and they would say, well, we have a tax, we have accounting and auditing, we have other, or maybe they'll call it advisory. Mm -hmm. And it's really becoming tax, accounting and auditing, CAS and other, yes. or advisory. Yes. And that's a really important message for people to wrap. If you think about it that way, then you can figure out how to actually go down that path, I think. Barry, I love what you said about um, the impact of CAS through the last few years here with the pandemic, because for myself coming from a different sector and was primarily working in hospitality at that time, 
I was on the front lines of witnessing how the CPAs truly were that trusted business advisor to hotels and restaurants that were going through, frankly, the hardest time that we've ever witnessed in the history of, of hospitality. So I can speak to it from, from that lens as well. And I can tell you with confidence that the thousands of hotels and restaurants across the country, many of them would not still be open without the help and support of their CPA. So I completely agree. Yeah, that's absolutely there. right. And, and I think, again, people in the profession need to remember how valuable that really is. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, tying it into cash real quick, thinking about it as a trusted advisor and also back to how you build it, particularly in a small firm, I think, you know, as you have young people, you're identifying young people, future leaders, people you want to groom, it's a wonderful practice area to really take a younger person in mm -hmm. um, and really devote, you know, their energies they'll be very innovative and they'll make it happen very effectively. Mm -hmm. And even the biggest firms are doing that type of thing, a partner track person, et cetera. So it's a win-win also inside the firm. I think that's a great transition to the next topic that we want to dig into today. And you know it's coming, right? Human we capital. Get the question. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I'll, I'm, I've shared with you um, previously, but in my, my first year here as CEO, um, I've traveled about 15,000 miles in the last year to go out and meet with as many members as possible and just really understand what their most acute challenges are so that we can make sure we are providing support and, and services and programs that, that meet their needs. And um, I think we did 64 visits this past year. And in 63 of the 64, what do you think our, our leaders wanted to talk People. about? People, talent, exactly. <clears throat> so we know it is the single biggest issue facing the profession. And certainly it's a very complicated issue as well. There is no one silver bullet that will allow us to solve our pipeline challenges. And certainly there's the retention and development side of the aisle first. So, Let's start with what are some of the headwinds facing the profession that are complicating this issue? I think it's important for our members to understand the forces around us that are going on. Well, first, let's start with the fact that we can sort of drop the woe is me point because we're not alone in this problem. Very right? true. It's a macro issue in society. Let's start with the fact that there are more than a million less young people in colleges and universities in this country compared to pre-COVID, more than a million. Mm -hmm. And that's on a base of less than 15 million. So it's, it's, it's a big number that, and if you look at community colleges, which is also a feeder to our profession, it's down more than 20%. And so when you just take that macro element, it's not, it's not about somebody sitting around saying, we're shifting everybody away from accounting. That's not the case. But it's still, there still are a lot of headwinds. One, and, and there'll be many listening to this who will not like this statement, but we have a starting salary problem in our profession. Um, and, and, you, and they won't believe this, but prior to COVID, we had excess supply over demand in the colleges and universities in the county. Um, and we had less hiring that was taking place of accounting grads because of technology and shifts. The largest, the largest firms are the largest hires, but it was out of equilibrium. We had about two years of that element. And when you have less hiring and more supply, mm -hmm. what happens? Salaries stagnate. Right. And it's nobody was like evil about it. That's mm -hmm. just economics. And when salaries stagnate and you live in a social media world, all of a sudden that spreads like wildfire in 
with siblings and friends and all of those things with young people in colleges and universities. And that started to impact enrollments in accounting to go with. And before people say, well, I can't afford to pay more, I would encourage, I would encourage people to take a look who are leaders of firms and go back to what their starting salary was when they entered the profession take a, a CPI increase over that, over whatever number of years, mm -hmm. and see where your firm is on starting salaries compared to how that should have inflated, if you want to call it that, mm -hmm. in that time frame. And the shift has occurred. Now there's some, some reasons why. The technological impact, actually the shape of firms is changing, another headwind. Mm -hmm. You know, we have been traditionally a pyramid-shaped firm, uh, firms, wider, wider base, a lot of entry-level positions that move up to the top. It's how finance functions are structured mm -hmm. as well. That's shifting to more of a fat middle pr perspective. Some of that is technology that's changing the, the baseline, but that plays out in the university system as well. Mm -hmm. So you have those elements. There's another demographic element in that this generation going to college, not just because of COVID, there's just less people in it. Mm -hmm. You have competition in today's world. And for those of you who are around in, in the late 1990s in the so-called dot-com era, we had this exact same fact pattern. The, it, the, first, the first five to seven years of the 1990 decade, we had a tailing off of people majoring in accounting. Why? Because they were all gonna go into, um, they were gonna go into technology and become you know, Microsoft millionaires or whatever the case may be. <laughs> And so I use Microsoft because that was the brand back then, not the, the ones today, but it's the same type of environment and that too leveled out. So things will level out. Now, there are also, there's a, there's a magnitude of issues. There's different skill sets into the profession that's yes. very important. So we're no longer, just like we talked about cast being a third leg to the stool as far as revenue, you know, we're no longer just about accounting and tax technical knowledge. In fact, the footprint of a CPA of the future, the technical knowledge is sort of table stakes. It's like, mm -hmm. it's like what you need to sit at the table in Vegas, right? Mm -hmm. Technical knowledge is assumed. It's these other skill sets of business acumen and human relations skills and strategy that are really creating this trusted advisor value in the system. And so we have to change what the CPA is. And we've been working on that for a long time. And in the midst of COVID, the states, the state boards, and the profession agreed to make a very significant change in the CPA to add a technology third leg to the mm -hmm. profession. So if you think about the CPA exam for a long time, um, accounting and auditing, tax were the two legs. Mm -hmm. Now it will be those two legs plus a technology leg. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, we face image challenges. We are a very agile profession. I talk about it all the time. You can give, I can give hundreds of examples of how much we evolve but we still fight the image that we don't evolve. Well, the reality is we do very, very effectively. Firms don't look like they used to be and they won't into the future. And so um, all of those things add to that environment. And by the way, it's hard making your way as a profession in accounting. It really is, it's a hard profession. It's, 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 it's a great career and you know, the selling point of the profession has always been, you always can find a job, mm -hmm. and the career progression is always gonna be very fruitful for the people who are in it. Mm -hmm. Well, there are a lot of other, that are other careers that are competitive with that message now, and a generation that says, yeah, I can't think 20 years down the road. Right, right? it's a challenge. So, it's a challenge, mm -hmm. and so, 
um, we have to change those messaging. And one of the challenges to state societies, I would say, is that we have to have a much greater presence, and I know Florida has traditionally done a lot of this, but a greater presence in the high schools. No question. Because the war for talent, if you want to call it that, and war is a bad term, mm -hmm. but the fight for talent is at the high school level. And people have heard me speak before, for a decade or so, the number one major in college and universities was undecided. Mm -hmm. That meant that the battle for talent was actually early in college. Yes. And that's where our attention was. Now that is shifting to being a high school challenge. Mm -hmm. And that's where our present needs to be. And we need members of firms. The Florida mm -hmm. Institute needs it and every other state society needs it. You need people from firms, young people telling the story, but in high schools, including in inner city high schools yes. and, and minority um, you know, focused high schools, because those are really important issues to feed the pipeline. No question. And, and I would even argue that it, we almost have to start in middle school nowadays because by the time they're getting to high school, so many of the kids are entering dual enrollment programs. And I know we're working collectively together on, on trying to add accounting to the STEM designation nationally, which will certainly help yeah. in the K through 12 space. But I think the message there is we've got to get to them younger. We've got to get um, those champions for the profession out there and into the high schools. Um, and also that we all have a role to play. I think that's equally as important. It's not just AICPA, it's not just the state societies, it's not just NASBA, it's not just the firms, right? It's not just but the But it is educators. including the firms. It includes the firms as well. Right. Yes, it's all of us working right. collectively we, together. We're working a, a, a profession-wide plan with mm -hmm. metrics and accountabilities with five key stakeholder groups, which you just mm -hmm. named. You didn't add the academic. Educators, yep. That's right. But but firms are very important. You have to have a CPA culture. And you know, I would challenge for leaders in firms, when have you talked to you know young people about really what the progression is to partner and very early in their career? What do you do to enhance them studying for the exam? How do you deliver that message? That and, and we actually have a list of five things that are very important for firms to do in creating a CPA culture. And some of it you might say, well, of course they do that, but a self-reflection the firms probably aren't doing that as well as they are. And one other one that's really important, a lot of firms will have people who go back to the alma mater and be on advisory boards and the like. And the time to be on advisory boards is now, but the message needs to be very direct as well at the colleges and universities. A lot of that in the past has been, you know, a friendly sit down for a sandwich lunch and hear what the university's doing. Right. You have to you have to deliver the message of the variety of the profession, the opportunity of the profession, and you have to have expectations from that academic you know, group, the, the, the head of the accounting program and all of the accounting faculty. Mm -hmm. um, and CPA Evolution that I mentioned, putting technology into it, pulls a different pipeline of people it does. into to that process. One other thing, I agree with you on the elementary, mm -hmm. but I do think I do think we gotta get the high school right first. I agree. Right, because there's a cost-benefit issue if we sort of try to, you know, swallow the whole ocean at the same time, right. we're not going to be as successful. Yeah. So, yes, we, we need the presence that has, at colleges and universities, that needs to be nurtured. Mm -hmm. We need to establish it to a greater degree in high schools. Mm -hmm. And then when we do that, we can Work really backwards. focus on the, on the talented 
at, you know, at the mid schools and all of those types of things. But really having the right message in the high schools is very important. I couldn't, I could not agree more. I think it's important that as I think about my own children who are not in high school yet at the ripe ages of six and nine, they're already starting to crystallize what yeah. they want to do for their life. And, and I, if I think about when I was that age, you know, I was, oh, I want to be a rock star or something equally as cool as that. But it's amazing to me to see now because of social media, especially their ability to identify with a career even younger than we've ever seen before, it's, it's mesmerizing in many ways. And so we've got to do our part. Yeah, it's important. And, and STEM helps, as you said. And mm -hmm. yes, all of that is important. And we're working on an honest course. Uh, we were teaching, I was with a group of high school academia, uh, academics this, this week, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, we're doing all of those things to influence it. So it, I think the easiest message is it's multifaceted and there, there's a role for everybody in this and it takes everybody. Very much so. Um, I want to touch on 150 versus 120 uh, before we close out the talent conversation. But before I do, uh, members that are listening in to this, rest assured that we here at the state level are also playing our part um, as a cog in the wheel to help to provide solutions for we know what is your biggest need right now. We are also working on a number of programs and activities to help get you connected to the students here in Florida that are our superstar accounting majors across the state. So more to come there. But Barry, ever since I've arrived in the accounting profession, the term 150 versus 120 has come up time and time again. Um, share with our members a little bit, what are um, some of the challenges that exist when we start talking about potentially shifting down to 120? Because I'm not sure that everybody truly understands the domino effect that would occur there. Um, and maybe just speak a little bit about why 150 came to be and, and how that's important. And Florida was a leader in 150. We were. Um, so, I, look, I, it's, it's clearly what, in a practice world, if someone, in my opinion, is sort of just saying, I got a human capital need, mm -hmm. oh, it's 150 is the problem. Mm -hmm. um, and people say it, and I hear it, you hear it, and we acknowledge that. But I do think it requires people to step back and think about it more strategically than just that. First off, um, 150 was created strategically to elevate accounting from what was viewed in the marketplace as essentially a trade coming out of the 40s, 50s, 60s, and it started to be debated in the 60s. It didn't get implemented until the 80s. Wow. It, it didn't get voted on until the 80s and implemented actually at the end of the 1990s. So, um, but prof the profession of accounting was really more the trade of accounting to a large degree. Mm -hmm. At the very big level in the public company auditing space, it was different, but when you got into smaller firms, that was the case. And what I like to say is if you think about walking on Main Street, pick your town in Florida, if you walked on Main Street in the 70s and the 80s and you said, what professionals are the, the powerhouse in that Main Street? What you would have found was lawyers and doctors and probably civil engineers, mm -hmm. those three, not all lawyers, but certainly the corporate lawyers. Sure. And that's the powerhouse. It wasn't the CPAs. And that's because they were considered, those were considered learned professions. Mm -hmm. And you can use that term in different ways. What, what the additional education does, which all professions have additional education, it elevated our profession. Mm -hmm. And that has paid huge dividends. It has added to the attractiveness of the profession, not deterred to it. 
it has increased the economic uh, impact of our profession on the people who are in it. And it has allowed us to have much more success on the advocacy level, state mm -hmm. and the federal level. And our profession is the most trusted profession in the world. You don't, you don't achieve that. You don't achieve that if it's the accounting trade or the, you know, it's the accounting profession that gets that image. Mm -hmm. And so it has elevated the profession enormously. There's a lot of data that young people who don't major in accounting or those who are majoring and switch, et cetera, mm -hmm. it's not because of 150. In fact, the most recent study, it was the seventh influencer. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different notion. I get it's easy to make the right. knee-jerk point on that. Right. Now, but you also have to look at this from a structural perspective. We are actually also the most mobile of all professions. Mm -hmm. we, can, we have mobility in all of the states, mm -hmm. technically all of the states but Hawaii, but mm -hmm. we have it in all of the states. There are huge challenges on licensing, including in this state, by the way, mm -hmm. where governors and legislatures and, and people on the right and people on the left are attacking the licensing regimes. And it's easy to say, oh, that's a true, well, they're attacking it for trades. Well, they're attacking it for professions as well. Mm -hmm. And the risk of losing those types of things is very great. And we came very close in a couple of states, not Florida, but we came very close in a couple of states to having legislation that will underm undermine the even licensing process of, of CPA. And when you're at that higher level, it's a much better argument. The other thing is our additional education at 150 is much more flexibility, which allows us to be at the university level an attraction to people who are career changers mm -hmm. because those hours, call, those hours count towards that environment. Um, and frankly, young people, the best and the brightest, are attracted to professions. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, some are attracted today to just going to work in the technology space, not in a profession, and you know, seeing dollar signs or seeing the 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 energy in the technology space which we talked about earlier but you know people see professions as something that's a calling mm -hmm. and we have a calling as well as our as a profession uh in the public interest side so it's a complicated issue yeah. um but to unwind it automatically starts yeah. automatically starts unwinding the mobility issue in the profession and puts us at risk in this well-funded by people who are opposed to professions and trades being licensed, big money that's fighting us on the other side. So it's a, it's a highly complicated process. Now, I will say we can make improvements, and let me close with that. Sure. And I think, I think that internships with academic rigor, not just internships that say, just come to work for me, but at internships that combine um, academic rigor with work experience, where academic oversight gives credit for that, Agreed. that can aid to close the gap for some. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that we, there's a lot of work being done in that space, and that would be a good evolution in the process. But no, I completely agree with you, Barry. I, and I'm super excited to see some of the work that EY and others are trying in, in that space. And I think that it's all about how we get that 30 hours, and if we can have a rigorous internship program that does have the oversight of the academic community and those learning competencies all aligned together. That is a tremendous solution towards both helping to close the skills gap, but then also 
to um, excite what we know is a, a detailed process right. to get to 150. It's the academic rigor. It's not the conversion of academic rigor into just pure experience because experience is a different part mm -hmm. of the licensing process. Yep, exactly right. Okay, so I want to um, shift over to one last big picture topic area, and that is ESG. And um, I think a lot of our members around the state are probably wondering why we are talking so much about ESG <laughs> right now, um, and maybe a little bit confused as to what role the profession currently or could play into uh, the future as we think about the ESG model. And I think it'd be good for them to hear from you. What is the opportunity for the profession here? What do you see coming down the pike and, and how can they get prepared to take advantage? Okay, first let's let's acknowledge it's more political in the United States than any place else in the world. Sure. So, you know, there's a political, you know, polarization on this issue. Is it overplayed or is it the most important thing in our lifetimes? Mm -hmm. And and so what I would first say in answering this question, whoever's listening, just put your personal sort of thought process on that. Mm -hmm. You're entitled to it. You can have your opinions on it. That's you know your rights, and you should have a personal opinion on, you know the, the the whole notion of the environment, particularly. But let's just think about it with the profession's hat, which is what you asked me to do. Mm -hmm. So, um, where the world is moving, and it's starting at bigger business and cascading down, is this notion that what what is required for businesses to report on is changing. Mm -hmm. So for decades, it was about financial information. Mm -hmm. And when financial information a hundred years ago, literally coming out of the 1929 market crash, became the definition of what businesses had to report um, or had to, to be transparent about in some way, and even private business transparent to lenders, etc., it was about financial information. And the auditing profession and the accounting profession exploded from that standpoint because we were the providers of the rigor and the, uh, with the audit process, the reliability of that. And standards, if you think about accounting standards, and this is a little bit of a history lesson, mm -hmm. but in the early part of the 1900s, there was no such thing as, go, as generally accepted accounting principles, our term here in the United States. Um, in fact, firms that they had, their had, back then, had their own standards. So each firm had their own accounting answers, if you will. Now that started to, in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s, through a variety of things, became more standardized mm -hmm. and that there was a standardization of measurement. What we're talking about today is the notion of a broader base, and I'm going to say business information, not just accounting. Mm -hmm. So financial information is a piece of the business information umbrella, but today it's not the only thing. And the other thing includes to multi-stakeholders, different people wanting different information, things like employee information, things like environmental information, and other types of social issues, in intangible assets mm -hmm. information, and even relationship information, supply chain falls into that uh, environment. And the governments of the world, and the investors of the world, and the employees of the world, and every other type of stakeholder group is saying, no, the quid pro quo of you operating as a business in society is a broader set of information. And where that falls is into this ESG space to a large degree. And what we have developing, not over four or five decades, but in a very rapid period of time, is a set of global standards that will go to how do you measure, how do you report on particularly environmental issues, and then it'll expand into some of these other areas. 
and as big business as they report on that, they're going to request that information because they're going to have to from their, their suppliers mm -hmm. and their customer base in some cases, and that's all going to roll up into how they report on that information. And so the issue of ESG is really not about the environment as it relates to business information. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a component. It's about this notion of a shifting reporting environment. So as a CPA, you might say, just let me stick to my knitting. Well, that's a pretty <laughs> narrow view of where the world is headed. And if we would have done that with accounting, we might not be where we are today either. And so the notion is if businesses are going to be expected to tell stories differently and it's going to need to be consistent and reliable, and so we have standards. We ought to like standards. We like measurement against standards. Mm -hmm. We're going to ultimately have assurance on those standards. So here's how I describe it in a simple way. All of this is about five elements. Mm -hmm. it's, about, it, it's about controls in a business and how you gather the information. We know about internal controls on finances. Mm -hmm. It's about taking that information and measuring it. We know how to measure like a transaction against an accounting standard. So measurement of information against new sustainability standards. We know how to then take that information to tell a story for decision making inside of a business. That's what financial information does. Then we know how to tell that story and communicate it broadly to third parties. Mm -hmm. That's what external financial reporting is. And then finally, we, need, we know how to provide assurance on that basis mm -hmm. so that um, there's reliability. All five of those things, whether you work in corporate or you work in public accounting, is the sweet spot of our skill set. Definitely. And that's why the opportunity is there. Okay, Barry, thank you again so much for joining us today. Before we close, I have one last question for you. And I'm thinking about our young CPAs out there that are maybe in school or just starting to get licensed or are just recently licensed, anyone on that continuum. Um, I think about what it takes for them to be successful in their career. And they may be wondering, what can I do to get involved with either the Florida Institute or with the AICPA, and, and how is that going to help me in my career? What advice would you give our young folks relative to helping to grow their professional network and their education? Yeah, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any CPA professional anywhere in this country or in this state who have been involved at the state or federal level not say they get way more out of it than they put into it. Mm -hmm. That is sort of the nature of our profession. And so the interaction with other people on a subject matter, a social area that might be in a sort of a local community mm -hmm. or a learning process or contributing your own knowledge, the collective wisdom is just phenomenal. Yeah. And so that's at a starting point. And uh, the earlier you get involved, probably the better from that standpoint. Now I understand you know, family commitments and time and all of those things impacted. So pick one area. Pick one area. It could be something in advocacy. It could be something in, you know, providing input into a tax matter, you know, any of those types of things. Um, so they're great opportunities. I think the next phase is for young people. I think they have the types of discussions about their career with their employers. Mm -hmm. And their employers have that obligation, I think, very early on the beauty of our profession, the opportunity of our profession, and really understand it. Then I think you leverage that into opportunities of leadership development, mm -hmm. first starting at the state level and then probably at the national level. There's leadership 
programs and academies that exist where you learn more about the profession and you can contribute more and become future leaders because the young CPAs today are going to be the chairman of FICPA or the AICPA or the board members in the future or the committee chairs in the subject matter areas. Um, and there's a lot of ways to do that. You know, inside your firm, you know, volunteer to speak before clients in a client meeting that inevitably are, are you know, with your firm, be involved in civic activities, et cetera, and leverage the CPA image in that particular environment. So it's, it's almost unlimited. I think the most important thing that I would close with on that, though, is a young person earlier in their career, and I know some people as young generations say, I can't think 20 years out, but the profession is going to have a critical role in how the world evolves over your entire career, mm -hmm. and you're part of that profession. And just like medical science evolves tremendously in how we're going to live longer, um, how businesses thrive, how standard of living uh, improves is really, really important. So think about it as a, as a profession, as something that is adding to the collective good. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, then you're going to find a lot of opportunities to be involved. I couldn't agree more. And I think from my perspective, the biggest message I have is get involved get engaged. Um, you're going to get a lot out of it, as, as Barry said, and we can certainly help to grow both your professional network, your leadership development skills, and help you to advance in your career even faster. Barry, again, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an amazing conversation. Um, we know your schedule is so busy, so on behalf of our 19,000 members statewide, thank you for bringing us your expertise and talent today, and hopefully the first of many conversations that we can do together. Members, until next time, we'll see you on the next episode of CEO Conversations. Have a good one.